You are listening to The Stimulus Podcast. Mmm, funkity funk, funk. Hello, my friends, Rob Orman here. For those of you new to the show, what we do is break down ideas, strategies, and tactics to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Stimulus is a production of Orman Physician Coaching, where we help docs work through burnout, overwhelm, career quagmires, leadership challenges, maladaptive habits and behaviors, its professional growth, and personal development. If you want to learn more about what we do, you can find it all. Well, not all. I say all, but you know, like the surface, the tip of the iceberg at roborman.com. That's where you'll also find the complete show notes for this or any other episode. And on the website, you can learn more about one-on-one coaching. And if you've got the inkling, sign up for a free coaching discovery session. And on today's show, we are digging into a topic that is painful for many. Well, many of you, I'd say, who are listening to this right now, and that is performance metrics, the report card that says whether or not you're measuring up to a set standard for something. Now, that idea, setting a standard by which performance is assessed, I don't think anyone would argue that's a bad idea, that's problematic in and of itself, but in the modern era, metrics in medicine are often seen rightly or wrongly, as an administrative checkbox at best, and potentially even harmful. So to that end, our guest is an expert in the area of performance metrics, and that is Dr. Sean Dowling. Sean is an associate professor the Department of Emergency Medicine, Department of Pediatrics, Cummings School of Medicine, University of Calgary in Canada. And Sean, this is kind of one of his areas of focus, and he speaks far and wide on the topic of a rational and productive approach to using metrics, crafting metrics in a thoughtful way, something that can actually improve our quality at work, our quality of care. And one note before we get into this, I recorded the interview with Sean when I was still in clinical practice. So when I speak about metrics, I will be referring to them in the present tense. Okay, let's get to it. Embracing the Metrics with Dr. Sean Dowling. Clearly, this is a big part of our lives, but it also seems to be such a negative part of our lives. Like, Why is it important for us to understand this? As clinicians, we want to provide the best care possible. That's kind of been ingrained to us right from the start of medical school. And when we first decided we wanted to go into medicine, And unfortunately, we're not able to do that without getting a good sense of how we practice and how we practice in relationship to our colleagues and how we practice in relationship to what the goals of our care or the achievable benchmarks of care. So getting physicians feedback in terms of how they practice in a more dynamic way rather than just your every two or three or four year performance reviews is a much more fruitful way to get physicians to identify perceived and unperceived learning needs. As you're saying that, I think about trying to find value in metrics as they're currently used. And frankly, I see them mostly used as something punitive and really the metrics that are used not always well thought out. And I contrast that with how data and metrics are usually used. Let's say, for example, in sports training, you know, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And when it's information that you, like the primary operator or the athlete, really want so you can act on it, it's great. And you can improve. But when I see metrics in medicine, they seem poorly thought out. They seem capricious. 
And they also seem to be not information that I am looking for to improve my practice. And I was talking to an ED director just the other day and he said, oh, in my hospital, we don't use metrics and it's awesome. You know, I think you identified one of the key challenges right now or one of the key issues with metrics is what they've been used for and which metrics we've been providing clinicians. And, you know, unfortunately right now in medicine, unlike sports and a lot of the other industries, we're really just at the launching point of providing providers with metrics. So we're still largely figuring out how to do this well. So I think the fact that these have been negative and not useful for clinicians at this point doesn't mean we have to get rid of these altogether. Instead, I think it means we need to redesign these and co-design them with clinicians to make them reflect what we want to get out of these metrics. We were using the sports analogy and one reason that you use data in sports, heart rate, power, timing, whatever, is that you're not great at assessing it on your own. So you need something to give you that feedback. And we think that, you know, we've been through all this training. We're kind of at the top of the pyramid. We can be our own judges of if we're doing a good job or not. That's a common fallacy in medicine. And one that I see all the time when I talk to physicians about this is that we have this notion that we are good at self-reflecting or self-assessing what our quality of care we provide is or the type of care we provide is. And there's lots of evidence out there that shows we're actually quite poor in terms of assessing the quality and the quantity of care that we provide relative to our colleagues. So feedback is an opportunity for us to get that more objective data to show how we practice. A great example that I always describe is talk with your nurses, ask them what they see in terms of variability of care across uh, different physicians. And they're a source of information about what different physicians do across similar presentations. And that's really where there's an opportunity for us to decrease some of that variability in the care being provided and get physicians that clearly identified areas for learning. When we're talking about audit and feedback, which, you know, we've been talking about metrics, but really what it is, you give audit and you give feedback so that you can do some kind of improvement. Usually what happens is, is a groan, right? A collective groan, if it's at a meeting or if it's an individual, an individual groan. Is there evidence that using this is an effective intervention that, oh, this can actually make change for the better? There's lots of quite good evidence, you know, RCT level evidence that audit and feedback is an effective intervention. Now, That being said, it's not a homogenous intervention. The way it's done varies greatly across different projects and different studies. The impact of it is highly variable. But audit and feedback done using sort of the best evidence can be a very impactful tool to get physicians to identify opportunities for change in practice and implementing changes in their practice. Although our understanding of what makes audit feedback most impactful is still being fleshed out. And when you say that, it makes me think about where this comes from. I mean, I've been in meetings where the metrics we're going to be evaluated on are number one, created by administrators. And number two, they are not done with any sort of intent at improving patient care. They're done with administrative intent. Definitely. You know, one of the challenges is what we can measure is quite limited. So we tend to focus on providing data to clinicians on what data we have available to us. And in emergency department, one of the most common metrics is flow-based metrics, you know, time to consult, time to discharge, 
number of patients seen per hour. And the problem with those metrics are they're not necessarily meaningful for clinicians. There's lots of reasons why those aren't actionable by the physician, even if you want to change variable X that you're being given data on. There's lots of other factors that contribute to why you can't directly impact that. So the lack of actionability by the physician, the lack of impact on it on patient care, and the fact that the clinicians, the frontline clinicians weren't involved in developing those metrics all make people very reluctant to interact with this data. When we do our feedback sessions, one of the first things we do is normalize the reaction to data because it's reliable. I would say I've not done one of these sessions with physicians where there's not been someone in the room, if not the majority of people in the room, who say that, you know, I don't like this data. This data doesn't apply to me. My patients are sicker or my practice is different. Lots of reasons why they don't believe that data. Often that comes from a place where they don't believe the purpose of this data and they don't think that this is actually helping them provide better care. They view this as something that's punitive or something that's top-down rather than what we promote and encourage is that this data is meant to be self-reflective. It's not meant to be punitive. It's meant for you to look at what your practice is like and what your performance is on whatever metric you're being given the data on and identify opportunities for improvement and identify barriers. And one of the, the challenges is clinicians tend to think in isolation. They think, if I'm not performing well on this metric, then the assumption must be that I'm the problem. And often what we've identified in these situations is that there are more system level changes or action plans that can be created that address this metric and the responsibility doesn't lie solely in the individual provider. I was talking with a new grad recently and he relayed a story where he had been criticized for using labs and ultrasound to evaluate patients for appendicitis. And the message he got from ED leadership, these are the easier his ED doc saying, why are you wasting time with that? Looking at his data, it's interfering with patient flow. Just get a CAT scan and be done with it. So he was criticized, like harshly criticized for his length of stay numbers being too long. And this specific case was used as an example. And this is one of the perceived dangers with metrics, checking the box, perhaps to the detriment of the patient. Exactly. You know, that's a great illustration of why frontline physicians need to help with designing these metrics and making them reflect what they value as improving patient care. Because the reality is this data is coming. It's there now in most departments. It's going to become increasingly abundant with our access to data through electronic health records, etc. But it needs to be meaningful. And one of the things we often check with all these metrics is what we call balancing metrics. So for example, length of stay is one of the metrics, but you need to look at other metrics that are associated with that in terms of resource utilization and other metrics. For example, one of the metrics that we often present physicians with is their time to consult, you know, trying to get that time to consult down as low as possible. And is that a meaningful number? It looks really good. Like, like you know, get in the room lickety split, you're Johnny on the spot. But it's like, hey, I'm taking care of these other patients. Does it change patient outcome if I'm eight minutes to my consult to see this patient versus I'm 18 minutes to consult and see this patient? 
Well, exactly. And if you're quick to consult, but then your consult admission rate is really low, then you're leaving that patient in the department for a number of hours while they're waiting for the consultant and ultimately discharge home. So you need to provide these balancing metrics that offset some of these other more traditional metrics like flow-based metrics. So again, with number of patients seen per hour, we have balancing metrics like return visits to make sure that you're balancing being really fast with the number of patients you're seeing return to the departments within the next 72 hours. So you need to paint as full of a picture as possible in terms of the care, because the reality is the data that we have at this point can't paint a picture of how good of a physician we are. And we have to acknowledge that and stop thinking that it actually does do that. So that is a great example of how data can be used poorly by just looking at one of these metrics in isolation and having it be used punitively for the physician. Because again, if we're doing something that decreases the autonomy of the physician and is viewed as negative or viewed as evaluative, I think it's much more likely to decrease physician satisfaction and very possible can increase burnout amongst physicians. That thing you said about what it doesn't tell us, what data does not tell us, if we just don't know what's a good doc, what's a bad doc. We just know that we have these data spots that we are, we think they might be important, but we should, we frankly don't know. We know that once we have good metrics and ones that are as granular as possible, based on evidence that they're physician actionable, that they're important for the frontline physicians, it's a handful of selected metrics that check those boxes. Once we have those, then we can actually tailor discussions around how we change our practice with that and identifying barriers, facilitators, and then actually coming up with an action plan. And one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is the socialization process of this. Traditionally, these metrics are sent off very passively, you know, in the form of a report, uh, you know, and sometimes it's as simple as an Excel file that gets sent out to physicians. Yep. That's exactly how it is. Here's your metrics. And then you see how many standard deviations you are below or above. And you hope you don't get the ones that are below, but invariably you've got some that are. And how are you expecting that passive two-dimensional information to get physicians to do anything but be upset with that data? What you actually need to do is provide that data in a way that's meaningful to physicians. So what we do is what we call these facilitated audit feedback sessions, where we get people into the room, we talk about why audit feedback is important, how effective it can be. And then we actually have one of our clinicians who actually help co-design the project and identify what are the important variables. We have them present their data to the group. And that actually co-presentation by a local champion actually really helps break the ice in terms of what this is meant to be. It's not the senior administrator, the department head who says, this is how you should be practicing. This is one of your colleagues who says, here are my numbers. And some of them are really good. Some of them are okay. Some of them actually need some improvements. Then we spend the last half of the session, so usually about 30 minutes, talking about what are the barriers to us changing our practice, what are things that we can actually leverage to actually change our practice, and then come up with an actual action plan to get individual physicians identifying what are the things they want to work on, which of these metrics they think are most important getting them to actually identify that action plan and put that action plan in place. And when there are system level changes that need to be made, then we as a group help work on those and we identify someone who owns that item. 
But when it's individual physician action plans that need to be created, those are done. And, you know, we're starting to work through the details of how you develop sort of peer groups that can help you support through this, how you can coach for change using stuff like academic detailing that can help provide clinicians with the tools to actually change their practice. Because providing the data without providing the tools for change is a very passive intervention that's not going to be helpful and is likely just going to create more resistance to this data. My experience with metrics, as you can probably tell from the questions addressed to Sean, has not been A, a net positive, and B, usually seen as at least tacitly punitive to the group of docs. For example, there's a metric created by the hospital administration, then presented under the veil of, this is how we measure excellent patient care, but with the stick that there's going to be some penalty for you, either as a single clinician or a group. And if this isn't met, best case, you're paid less. Worst case, you're not working here anymore. Something you measure about what you do should be something that you want to improve or at least see as valuable. That's the key for buy-in, but that's not historically how it's done. And it's usually presented as a you problem, you specifically, rather than a systems issue. So taking many steps back, I love how Sean has his docs engaged with this metric. The local physician champion, and it can't be someone who is two standard deviations better than everyone else, presents their data to the group and breaks the ice. Then the group becomes a stakeholder in this, identifying what they think are the important metrics. And then what can we put into place to work on that? But then that raises the question, what are important metrics because they have to be ones that make sense to us. And if a single doc or a group isn't meeting the metric, where do we go from there? What's the next step? I'm wondering what say would be the top three metrics that you would use or that you would find meaningful to try to create change. And let's say somebody's having trouble or somebody's a low performer on that metrics. And you say, this is something that we find value in improving, that we, the docs, find value in improving. And then what would be the plan to improve that? I think we're too early at a point right now that we can say, here are the key metrics that every department needs to be measured on, or key every physician needs to think is important. I think that's going to depend a little bit on the department and a little bit on the individual physicians. But the ones that I found most helpful and in talking with my colleagues that they found to be most helpful from an eMERGE perspective are, one is return visits to the emergency department. Whether you use a 72 hours or a seven-day return visit rate, the actual rate itself is probably not the most important part, although I think it is a good balancing metric to some of the other data that we provide physicians. I think being able to get those cases in somewhat real time to go back and see whether your care that you provided was done in such a way that if you had changed any component of it and you could have avoided that return visit you know, often we get these return visit cases and we look and said, yeah, there's nothing I could have done differently that this was going to happen regardless. And that's fine. But in those patients where you do look back and say, yeah, you know, I could have done something differently or my bias was this and that led to me missing this diagnosis. That's truly impactful going forward. And I think, you know, traditionally we get these data points years down the road, if at all, or just when a colleague stops you in the hall, and that's much less impactful than getting it in real time. 
Another metric I think that is useful, at least you know, for my practice, has been my diagnostic imaging utilization rates, in particular CT usage. You know, in a time of us wanting to minimize harm from uh, excessively CT in patients, uh, especially when it's not necessary, and, you know, increasing their length of stay, the opportunity cost of someone else not being able to get that CT because they're waiting for unnecessary CTs to be performed. I'll share a story from myself. When I first started getting my data, my CT usage rate was uh, higher than average, and I started to think about why this was happening. And one of the things was, I had a bit of a risk-averse personality. I felt if I didn't CT this person, I'd go home and worry about whether I'd miss some uh, important diagnosis. And so what I started to do is call patients a lot more after discharging them. So if I decided that I thought they were on the fence, but they likely didn't need a CT scan, I'd keep their name and call them over the next couple of days. And most often I was quite reassured that their symptoms had resolved, that I'd made the right decision to not image them, help alleviate some of my risk-averse concern. Patients loved it from a a follow-up perspective. And in the few situations where I called them and their symptoms had worsened and they did need some imaging at that point, then I was able to facilitate them getting back to eMERGE and getting the follow-up at that time. One of the things you have to do in this process is identify what are your reasons for your practice and then target that action plan or that strategy to what your barrier is to changing your practice. A final one that I found useful for myself as well, and people in our department have found useful, is usage of IV versus oral medications when an oral option is available. Often we jump to giving patients IVs because we think it's quicker. We think that's what patients expect. When I think about how this data has been presented at meetings I've been to. I love how you're doing it. You know, the 72-hour returns and not just looking at that, but why are those people coming back? Because some people will bring patients back, say, hey, let me recheck you in a couple of days and we'll see how you're doing. That is a great 72-hour return. But usually the thing that's valued is flow. It is length of stay short. It is low diagnostic testing utilization. And I think about groups that I've been in and there have been some docs who are super fast and it's like, yes, you are the champion of all. And they have really low diagnostic imaging rates, really low CT usage rates. But you know, when you're working a shift the next day after them, it's essentially going to be, I'm just going to see all your bounce backs for the stuff that you didn't do. It's a repeated pattern. And so I like that you tie in all of these things. You know, it's like, hey, you have a really low CT usage rate, but then let's look at your 72 hour returns and let's see if we can tie that in together. And that's meaningful. That's meaningful to the doc. That's meaningful to the patient. And I think it also gets away from this time metric. That's important. That's totally important. But this almost turns into the saber metric. We're kind of getting down to what makes a well-polished or full practice doctor versus one who's you know still working on some aspect or another. I'll be honest, I'm, you know, at this point, seeing the data that we have access to, I'm very skeptical of going down that path because I just don't think we can identify what's the secret sauce of what makes a good emergency physicians. What are the key diagnostic imaging rates? What are the key flow rates? Because more patients per hour is not necessarily better. What's the ideal return visit rate? How do you put these variables all together and then factor in that every department is different. If I work at an academic center or if I work across the street at the children's hospital, those numbers are going to be very different based on that cohort of patients. 
I want to get back to that flow, that flow metric, because it's there. It's always there. Length of stay. And, you know, my length of stay, it wasn't super fast. And it was the same way every time. Every time it was just, hey, you know, the guy who had the shortest length of stay, he was a champion. And it, it also turned out that that particular doc was also like a ninja and, you know, just had such amazing clinical judgment. It, it was really just incredible because he just had so many years of experience. His gestalt was beyond reproach. But it's interesting that there were younger doctors who would come in and say, oh, I'm going to emulate this practice. And, you know, they had bad outcomes and it was just, oh my gosh, like really, I know what I'm expect when I'm going to be reviewing your chart. But the fast length of stay never gets remediation. And where I was, which was a little bit below the median, I didn't get that either. Although I thought I was like, oh gosh, I'm like not measuring up. But the people that were really slow, some people got fired. Some people got, hey, you need to work on this in a sensible system. What would you do? Would you say, let's go through a sensible process to improve this because we see this as something that could actually improve outcome. If we decrease that length of stay, we can get more patients in. There's a cost to that patient who's maybe having an MI in the waiting room that we want to bring back, right? That's just kind of one of the tenets of emergency medicine. So if you're looking at that metric, which is not something that has a direct patient impact, like imaging, I mean, imaging can have a positive and negative impact, but length of stay, which seems to be purely physician-based, how, how would you approach that? One, you need to get that physician to be willing to change. And, you know, I think intrinsic motivation is far more likely to be successful than extrinsic motivation, where you're saying you have to do this or you're going to be remediated. I think that's probably not going to lead to sustainable change over time. The second thing is you have to unpackage what contributes to that physician's flow. Is it that they're intimidated by the next patient up on the screen, so they wait for a period of time and then won't pick up a patient till there's a case that they feel comfortable managing. The solution or the what's creating that low flow for that physician has to be unpackaged. And, you know, the traditional thing we've heard in situations like this, where you identify, someone identifies as a, a slower physician, they say, I, I want to work with the fastest physician in the department and see how they practice. And the reality is, if they're the lowest quartile, and then having them work with the fastest quartile physician, their practice is probably so drastically different than their practice that they probably can't take much from that person's practice to bring back to their own to change because they just function at such a different level in terms of their flow and their history taking and their physical exam and their use of diagnostics that you probably just need to pair them with someone who's just a little bit ahead of them in terms of their flow and coach them through that process and have that person follow them along, see what they identify as you know small changes that can be made to improve the efficiency of their throughput. And then the other thing I think we need to question overall is, is the solution faster docs or is it the solution, you know, maybe building more capacity where you have more physicians on and maybe you look at departmental stuff instead of, you know, addressing making physician X faster, maybe you pair them on shift with physician Y who's naturally much faster and they can work sort of symbiotically a little bit better where the faster doc has more patients to see and the slower doc has the time they they need to be able to do the assessments that they do as long as that slower doc is still providing good quality care. 
let's talk about buy-in on that. We'll use that particular metric since it's so common and the one that's usually used punitively. And think about, because I, I can remember a doc could say, hey, when I see LOS and this particular doc always had the, the slowest times, I don't see that as length of stay. I see that as level of service. That wasn't to be an ass. That was meant totally sincerely. It's like, hey, that's how this person practiced. This is somebody who was extremely experienced. Says, this is how I practice medicine. LOS is level of service, and I provide a very deep, comprehensive workup. A, there's not going to be an intrinsic motivation for me to change based on you providing me with this metric. How do you get buy-in from this? How do you present it so that it's something that works? For me, and for many clinicians, I don't think that's one that really drives us to want to change intrinsically, right? I think I'm like you in that my number of patients seen per hour is slightly below the average. You know, I've done some stuff to help shift that upwards towards the average of the group and I've done so, but I think sometimes when I really have ambitious to drive it up much higher, I find that I'm compromising some of the things that I think you know, make me the type of physician that I am, which I hope is one that provides good quality of care, you know, calling the family members and talking with them to get the full story or calling the nursing home to arrange uh, follow-up for the patient. So I sure I could drive those numbers down, but at what cost? And I think if you ask the patients what they value the most, uh, they probably don't value a brief assessment that says, everything's okay, you don't need anything, you can go home. What they value is that interaction with the physician and that connection with them and getting the care that they need. So this is obviously not going away. And I thought Canada would be immune, but clearly, even Canada is not immune from metrics, man. So we've got to do this. And you know, we are so passive in medicine, you know, as when we're the primary operator, we think like that's our job and we're so passive with these things that have a major impact on us. So I think it's important for us to know what's the big picture, what's the mission statement on how this is done right so that we can also be in the room and have some control over this. One of the keys to this is that we look at these metrics or this data as another tool to help improve the quality of care that we provide. And when we get this data personally, that we don't internalize this, and this data doesn't define who we are as people, and it doesn't define the quality of care that we provide, it provides a little nidus, a little opportunity for us to say, hey, what changes can we make to improve the quality of care we provide? And again, it's not just a matter of physician level changes. I know the thing that frustrates me the most is when we see one of these gaps, we assume that all we need to do is educate people more. We just need to give them more information. They need to go to rounds on CT utilization, and then that's suddenly going to change their practice. But it's much more complex than that. We need to look at system level changes that help encourage good quality of care. We need to look at patient level strategies One of the most common cited reasons for low-value care being provided is patient expectation. And, uh, you know, Michelle Lynn's got a nice paper about this with respect to choosing wisely. And a driver of why we use some of these low-value tests is that we perceive patients' expectations to be that they want these tests done. And And we suck. We suck at knowing patient expectations. Exactly. And we, we just did a project here with around CT for minor traumatic brain injury. 
And often patients did want a CT coming in for minor traumatic brain injury, but it's because they thought the CT would actually help them diagnose concussion. And when you actually frame that, we've got good clinical decision rules that CTs aren't necessary and that physicians can rule out a neurosurgical lesion based on using these clinical decision rules, the patient's expectations of CT decrease significantly because they realize that, yes, they didn't have actually a neurosurgical lesions and that there are downsides to these CT scans in terms of radiation and length of stay in the department. And based on providing with these infographics on the minor traumatic brain injury, they were much more receptive and willing to engage in a discussion with their physicians about not needing a CT scan and being open to foregoing that test. Sean Dowling. Pride of Calgary. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rob. This is a great opportunity to chat about something that I think is important to clinicians. This can become increasingly prevalent to our practice. I'm one that lives by the adage, if it really bugs you, like you said, rather than running away from it, we need to sprint towards it and make it look like what we want it to look like, which is a tool to help provide better quality of care. Run toward this. Own this. I was once in a meeting with a head administrator who said, we're going to start determining your reimbursement by metrics. If you don't meet all the metrics, you won't get a bonus. Okay, we said, well, what are the metrics? The response was, well, we figured that metrics were a good idea, but we don't know exactly what they should be. Now, that's usually not the case. It's usually a message from the hospital administration that, hey, here's the metrics you need to meet. And this is one area where I think it is worth it to go full cowbell, to dig in your heels and say, nope, these don't make sense. These are not evidence-based. Here's what they should be to be meaningful. Or if they do make sense, you know, administration doesn't always have bad ideas. Say, let's embrace this and really take it on as something to monitor and potentially improve our practice and our systems. So what metrics do you think are important to you and your group? Now, sometimes there's a clear issue within a department that needs addressing, like a problem that affects patient care, staff well-being, whatever. Now, that's something that might be important to measure. But looking on a more general scale, Sean presented some to consider, like return visits to the ED. This is done in a lot of shops, but what's not done is the rapid turnaround for this data, not just a number that you get several months later. Diagnostic imaging utilization. Personally, that's always been a perennial challenge. Even though I would try to apply decision instruments, Canadian C-spine, Canadian CT head, do a low-risk Wells and D-dimer, got that good. But it turns out that there's a lot of equivocal cases where you could watch and wait versus, you know what, just get the CT. And it turned out that I was way more often on the, just go ahead and get the CT side. Most of those CTs were negative. Some were positive, but as I would look at these numbers and see that I was a standard deviation or two above the mean, well, that means that I'm irradiating more patients and I don't know that my outcomes are necessarily better. So it led to more shared decision-making conversations with patients about options. Hey, watch and wait or do the test. Earlier on in my career, it was, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to get the CT and I'll let the patient know that that's what's coming versus years later saying, here's what I think might be happening and we've got a choice of watching and waiting versus doing a scan now. Here's the risks and benefits of each one of those. Full disclosure, I have still stayed on the higher than average of diagnostic imaging, but nowhere near the highest, which is where I had been. 
And a third one that Sean mentioned, which I had never even thought of as using as a metric, are you giving oral meds over IV when oral is available and equally effective? Like clindamycin, like ciprofloxacin, whatever. I mean, that's more cost. That is longer length of stay. Did they even need that IV in the first place? There's so much in that metric the potential morbidity from an IV placement if they didn't need one in the first place. There's ED systems with lengths of stay. There's so many things that we can do to really make a positive difference in care. And that is it for today. For complete and detailed show notes to subscribe to our newsletter or learn more about our one-on-one coaching program, you can hit us up at roborman.com. And if you dig the show, hit the subscribe button in your podcatcher so you don't even have to think about downloading it. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.